You're listening to Hello Movies, a podcast to get you off the couch and into the theater. I'm Lana Gay. In this episode, we talk with the director and the producer of It Chapter 2. No one who dies here ever really dies. We'll give you four compelling reasons to go see The Goldfinch. I know you were there, and I know what else was in that room. I've got trivia about books that were made into movies. Or were they? Plastics. Who are the plastics? They're teen royalty. Plus, we'll take a look at the history of movie trailers and chat with Tanner Zipchin of the Cineplex pre-show about what's coming to theaters this week. Let's get started. So, who's brave enough to see It Chapter 2? Personally, I am a chicken, but I'm guessing you are brave enough. Stephen King, who wrote the book both movies are based on, says audiences are more than ready for the sequel. When the first movie played, and it says the end of chapter one, audiences applauded. They wanted more. So now they're going to get more. Boy, are they ever. The sequel comes with a great cast playing the grown-up versions of The Losers Club. Jessica Chastain, James McAvoy, Bill Hader, and more. And, of course, Bill Skarsgård has returned as the nightmare-inducing clown. Go knock him, play! Go knock him! Go knock him! Back to Pennywise. <laughs> That's how I feel about Pennywise. Director Andy Muschietti told Hello Movies about the significance of the film's opening scene. It comes directly from the book and features the murder of a young gay man, Adrian Mellon. Stephen King's story is about many things. But one of the themes that he talks is about, like, the cruelty within our human condition. So regardless of the supernatural element that acts, you know, many times as a metaphor for other things, there's actually literally human cruelty going on. When uh, Stephen King included the event uh, of, of Adrian Mellon in his story, he was actually reflecting a real-life murder, which is the murder of, of Charlie Howard. Yeah, and that connects to a bigger theme that is, is, is that it stands for, you know, which is like, because it eventually talks about a monster that uses fear as a tool to divide and turn us against each other. And that's very relevant in the times that we're living. So this movie is about more than just watching Pennywise torment the Losers Club all over again. But don't get too relaxed. It's still super creepy. My father came to this country with $14 in his pocket. What did he do, Mrs. Kirsch? My father joined the circus. I was always daddy's little girl. What about you? Are you still his little girl, Beverly? Okay, every single scene in these trailers just freaks me out. I'm guessing you know the story. It's about a group of kids who were terrorized by Pennywise the Clown that returns to the town of Derry 27 years later to face him again. Stephen King and Bill Hader both have high praise for Andy Muschietti's directing. With it, Andy put the people first. And as a result, you have an old-fashioned movie experience where you root for the good guys. Andy's just going for broke as far as scope and scares. With Bill Hader along for the thrill, you might expect to get some comedy too, and you do. But those moments aren't there so much for relief as to heighten the tension. Producer Barbara Muschietti, who also happens to be the director's sister, 
talked about how this makes the movie much richer. And it's also, you know, part of life. It's the, the whole human experience. Uh, even when you experience pain, grief, fear, there's still going to be parts of humor. The humor normally provides like a shortcut to engaging with the characters emotionally. And also, you know, the unpredictability of it all. When you're telling a story that has humor, emotions, and horror, you never know how a scene is going to end. Is it going to end on a joke or a, or a chopped up head? Yikes. Andy Muschietti also directed the first movie, but for the sequel, he told us that he's changed his approach a little. Lately, I've been more and more open to what's, what's going on in the movie, what happens on the set, and how those changes ripple into new plots that happen. One of those plots came after a night of drinking tequila with James McAvoy, who plays the now-grown-up Bill Denbro. James felt the movie was missing something that would make him confront his guilt about his little brother's death. And a few drinks later, the two had come up with a scene that never appeared in the book when Bill gets trapped in a house of mirrors. The director told us about the moment of inspiration with an additional point from his sister, Barbara. So we came up with this, with a scene where Pennywise recreates the, the situation of, of Georgie with the kid uh, that lives in his house now. The tequila uh, session was a bit of the beginning of, of the creation of that scene. It's even worse because this time he makes Bill Denbro watch. So with inspiration coming from Stephen King, Tequila, and a whole lot of actors who were already terrified of Bill Skarsgård, you know you're in for a good time, especially if you enjoy having the pants scared off you. Bring a friend. As we've talked about, It Chapter 2 is based on Stephen King's novel It, and is one of many of his novels to be adapted into a movie. Next week we'll see the release of another movie made from a massively successful book. Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch. The nearly 800-page novel won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction and spent 30 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It's in very good company. Some of the biggest movies in history came from books, like The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, the Harry Potter movies, of course, Lord of the Rings, heck, even Cats. That one was technically a book of poems. But still, you know what I mean. The big takeaway is that there are a lot more movies based on books than you might think. Clueless, as you may already know, was a modernization of Jane Austen's Emma. Mean Girls was based on a book about peer pressure and bullying in adolescent girls, and has nothing to do with the plastics or trying to make fetch happen. So here comes the trivia. I'm going to name four movies. Three were adapted from books, and one just sounds like it could have been. Can you guess which one? Is it one... Planet of the Apes, two, Legally Blonde, three, Die Hard, or four, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. We'll give you the answer in just a bit. The Goldfinch, as mentioned, is based on the best-selling book by Donna Tartt. So what's it about? It tells the story of Theo, whose mother dies in a bombing at the Met in New York City. In the mess and confusion afterwards, Theo steals the painting she's been looking at, the goldfinch. That becomes the polarizing incident of his life, as he grows up to get involved in antiques, fraud, drugs, and 
well, it just gets complicated. I mean, the novel is, like I said before, almost 800 pages long, which means you probably don't have time to read it before the movie comes out. So here are four reasons to go see The Goldfinch, even if you haven't read the book. And if you have, you can use these reasons to convince your not-so-literary friends to come with you. Reason number one. The Pulitzer Prize-winning novel was a huge bestseller. While critics argued about it, and Stephen King praised it, it just kept selling. Even if you haven't read it, I bet you know at least 10 people who have. With so many fans of the characters and the story out there already, this movie is a pretty safe bet. Look at the map. Where were you when it happened? I don't remember. When you came around, did you see people? Yes. What were they doing? They were dead. Reason number two. The Goldfinch has a star-studded cast. Theo is played by Ansel Elgort, who starred in Baby Driver and is playing Tony in Steven Spielberg's upcoming remake of West Side Story. The young actor explained Theo's complicated relationship with the painting. Theo has so many secrets. He can't admit it all. The object that haunts him most. He can't even bear to look at it. More star power comes from Nicole Kidman. She plays Mrs. Barber, who takes Theo in after his mother dies and reconnects with him again when he's an adult. Antiques. When you were a child, I used to catch you studying my paintings. You'd always go straight to the very best ones, the Peel, the Lane, the Copley. I used to think, ah, oh, a kindred spirit. There's also Sarah Paulson, who's in everything these days, from American Horror Story to Ocean's 8, and hits it out of the park every single time. Her character's boyfriend is played by Luke Wilson, and the cast also includes Tony, Emmy, and Golden Globe winner Jeffrey Wright. And look for Canadian actor Finn Wolfhard. Yes, that's Mike from Stranger Things. He also happens to be in It Chapter 2. He won the director over with his perfect Russian accent to snag the role of Boris. On to reason number three. The team behind the camera is just as impressive as the people in front. Director John Crowley was nominated for an Oscar for his adaptation of another hit novel, Brooklyn. Screenwriter Peter Strawn wrote the miniseries Wolf Hall, also based on the bestseller. And the cinematographer is Roger Deakins, who won an Oscar for his last film, Blade Runner 2049. He was behind the camera on some huge movies famous for their distinctive looks, Skyfall, A Beautiful Mind, The Shawshank Redemption, Sid and Nancy, and a whole slew of Coen Brothers movies like Barton Fink and The Big Lebowski and Fargo. Finally, reason number four, there aren't any superheroes or scary clowns in it. Sure, I love superheroes, and people do like to have the wits scared out of them by clowns and other terrifying creatures, but isn't it nice to shift gears every once in a while? This movie is about art and family, loss and grief, and what happens when your whole life changes in an instant, all without the help of anything supernatural or superpowered, or creepy clowns. After a summer full of Avengers, elementals, singing lions, giant dinosaurs, talking sporks, and murderous dolls, the goldfinch makes for a nice change. Don't worry, you can still see the Joker in a month. And in the meantime, there's some great drama to make it worth the trip to the theater. Before and after. Everything is before and after. In the middle is the painting. Have we convinced you? The Goldfinch gets its world premiere at TIFF on September 8th and opens across the country on the 13th. Time to answer the trivia question. We named four movies. Did you guess which one was not adapted from a book? All right, was it 
One, Planet of the Apes. Two, Legally Blonde. Three, Die Hard. Or four, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Well, if you guessed Die Hard, sorry. The Bruce Willis action classic was based on the book Nothing Lasts Forever. Author Roderick Thorpe was inspired by the 1970s disaster movie The Towering Inferno, which also took place in a skyscraper. Did you think it was Planet of the Apes? Well, that whole franchise was based on a book by French author Pierre Boulle. Originally called La Planète des Singes, it was translated literally as Planet of the Apes in North America. But renamed Monkey Planet in the UK, I kind of like Monkey Planet. Was it Legally Blonde? Nope, that was a book too. It was written by Amanda Brown based on her own experiences at Stanford Law School. Well, that means the one we made up is The 40-Year-Old Virgin. The screenplay was written by Judd Apatow and the movie's star Steve Carell based on the ideas they found inside their own heads. So don't go looking for the book. You won't find it. Earlier in the podcast, we spoke to Andy Muschietti about directing It Chapter 2, which people were so very excited about for months and months before its release. How excited? In the teaser trailer's first two hours on Twitter, it racked up over 1.5 million views. It got another half million on YouTube. And yes, even if you watched it while cowering under a chair, it still counts. So what's been the biggest trailer ever? Beauty and the Beast, starring Emma Watson. It got over 127 million views on its first day, setting a record. So how did trailers become such a big deal? And why are they called trailers in the first place? In the early days, they were tacked on the backs of movies in theaters. That's right, trailing them. So they were all pretty simple. A few scenes from the movie here, a couple actors' names there, and bada-boom, done. By the 1930s, theater owners realized people weren't sticking around to watch them, so they moved trailers to before the movie. Good call. Then came the 1960s. Big-time directors like Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick, and Orson Welles kicked the old-school formula to the curb. Psycho's teaser trailer starred Hitchcock himself. Accompanied by some oddly jaunty music, he spent six minutes giving a personal tour of the Bates Motel, leading all the way up to that famous shower. You see, even in daylight, this place still looks a bit sinister. Honestly, I wouldn't recommend this to other directors. Even with Hitchcock, it gets old fast. Other filmmakers jazzed things up by adding footage that wasn't even in their films. B-movie director Roger Corman complained that a trailer was dull, so his editor spliced in an exploding helicopter scene. So what if it wasn't actually in the movie? It was exciting. You know, Marvel movies have embraced this tactic, often slipping scenes into the trailers that aren't in their films, just to keep you guessing. Now let's jump back to the 90s, also known as the pre-YouTube era. In 1998, Star Wars fans lined up for blocks in multiple cities to see the trailer for The Phantom Menace. Anakin Skywalker, meet Obi-Wan Kenobi. After the trailer, they left. Audiences these days don't have to pay for movies they don't want to watch just to catch the latest trailers. Today, the biggest ones premiere at Comic-Con, surrounded by movie stars and a lot of fanfare. They hit the internet minutes later, and then they get dissected frame by frame. Fans post reaction videos of themselves as they watch, boosting their own YouTube stats. And people still love to see them up on the big screen, 
where they're followed by whispers of outright rejection or promises for future movie dates. And if you go to see a movie at a Cineplex theater, you're going to get not just trailers, but a whole pre-show with interviews, some behind-the-scenes action, trivia, other fun stuff. And it's all hosted by Tanner Zipchin, who just happens to be in the studio right here with me now. He's going to give you the inside scoop about new movies hitting the theaters. And we actually have a little bit of a theme today. I guess so. There's a, a double true story feature. So, we, okay, we were talking trailers, and I just watched the one for Official Secrets, which is already in theaters, but I heard you interviewed Kira Knightley. How was that? Yeah, I did, uh, all the way in uh, London, England. Yeah, this is the, the, the first of our two true stories this week. Now, this one follows the true story of uh, British whistleblower uh, Catherine Gunn, who uh, informed the press of an uh, illegal NSA spy operation that was essentially gathering some information uh, to uh, have everyone vote, have the UN vote on the invasion of uh, Iraq in 2003. And uh, Catherine broke the Official Secrets Act and, and brought that story forward. Matthew uh, Smith also in this film and uh, Ray Fiennes, which makes this a little bit of a reunion because the last time I think they worked together, uh, Kira and Rafe worked on the on the Duchess. So they're they're back together uh, in this one. But uh, like like Kira Knightley said herself, this is a, an incredible story. It is a true story. And I think if we forget stories like this, history tends to repeat itself. So I think it's important to educate ourselves. Absolutely. Okay, now on the other side of the spectrum of true stories, uh, we have Hustlers coming out soon. The cast is amazing. J-Lo, Constance Wu, Cardi B, Lizzo, Julia Stiles, Lily Reinhardt from Riverdale. They're all strippers. Uh, The movie inspired by an article in in New York Magazine, uh, which is interesting. So what have you heard about this one? Yeah, this one, uh, J-Lo plays, I guess you could say, like the ringleader uh, in this uh, at this club with this group of strippers, and it's it's in the late 2000s, the economic uh, crash, and people aren't spending uh, the money like they used to. If even you know, if, if they're even going to the club in the first place uh, at all, so this group comes up with a way to get people to spend more cash, and that is essentially drugging them with this drug concoction, so they forget what happens and spend away, and then tomorrow morning. Pretend like nothing happened until some uh, new ladies show up at the club and try to kind of fix everything and, and expose them. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a crazy story. And then you realize at the end that it's a true story mm-hmm. or at least based on one. And um, check it out. I would, if you're, Especially if you're a big J-Lo fan. I, I, she's, she's a little meaner in this one than, than uh, you know, a normal J-Lo role, I got to say. It's not a rom-com. No. It is not a rom-com. No G-Lee here. All right. Well, thanks so much, Tanner, for taking the time. Thank you. And that's a wrap. We'll be back with a new episode in a few weeks. Please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. On our next episode of Hello Movies, we take a trip to Downton Abbey. Then look up to outer space to talk about Ad Astra. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard on the podcast, let us know at hellomovies at cineplex.com. Hello Movies is brought to you by Cineplex Entertainment. Lori Ulster is the writer of our podcast. Colton Eddy is our producer. Philip Zivkov is our sound designer and mixer. Our series consultant is Jeff Ulster. And our executive producer is Catherine Jun. I'm Lana Gay. Thanks for listening and see you at the movies. <laughs> <laughs>